When I think of waiting, I think of passivity. Staring at a phone, watching the second hand on the clock, waiting for that doctor who triple booked, or that table for a restaurant. But what we're going to see tonight is none of those describe waiting in the biblical sense. First of all, God knows how to wait. It's called his patience and long-suffering. In Genesis 15, in one of the greatest accounts of God telling a servant he's going to wait, in Genesis 15, in the midst of giving the covenant promise to Abraham, God almost offhandedly gives a reason why Abraham's descendants won't come back and can't possess the land for well over 400 years. And the Lord tells Abraham, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God is going to wait until that cup of wrath that he's going to pour out upon the Amorites is full. And the Amorites still have 400 years. God's not in a hurry. He has perfect timing. Think of how long God, in the case of the Amorites, endured the growing idolatry and pagan wickedness of this culture. Through Isaac's life, through Jacob's life, through Joseph's life, and then 200 more years until Amorite sinfulness reached a boiling point. And God finally, finally, after waiting, brings Joshua, the instrument in God's hands, to rout them in Joshua chapter 10. But we're also told of God the Son, that he's patiently waiting now. One of the things when you picture Christ on his throne that he's doing, Scripture tells us that he's waiting. In Hebrews chapter 10, we read, Jesus, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. We are told as well in Romans chapter 8 that the whole creation is groaning under the burden of sin, and we're given this astounding insight into creation. Paul writes in Romans 8 that the entire creation eagerly is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Not only does God and his creation know how to wait, but God conforms his elect to his image, and they too learn patience and long-suffering and how to wait. Last week, we first met Joshua, as we're beginning our study of the, the book and the life of Joshua, and we learn Joshua's genealogy, first of all, from First Chronicles 7, that he's from the tribe of Ephraim, from the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, that his immediate forefathers were Eli Shammah, his grandfather. Eli Shammah, Joshua's grandfather, was the acknowledged head of the tribe of Ephraim, the leader of tens of thousands. And then we saw in Exodus 17, Joshua's very first appearance on the pages of Scripture. If we just dove into Joshua chapter 1, we would miss much because we need to know who this man is. But in Exodus 17, in his very first appearance, as we meet Joshua, we meet him as he's being given orders from Moses. That's a fitting sight. Since all through the book of Joshua, we're going to find that he's given orders from the Lord. And he obeys. He salutes. But in this case, in Exodus 17, Joshua's given 24 hours from Moses to choose, train, and equip an army of grumbling ex-slaves to fight against the Amalekites, the descendants of Esau, who are very well equipped. 
And after a fierce day-long battle and Moses standing above on a hill with upheld rod, Joshua triumphs. Moses is told to write this event down in a book of remembrance and periodically read it to Joshua. And so we saw last week what Joshua learned that day. He learned that God doesn't ordinarily bypass means, in this case, prayer and war in the accomplishment of his purposes. That God's power is invincible against all odds. Here's here's an astounding military victory, one of the greatest in world history. Here's this ragtag group of Israelites. They don't know how to march. They don't know how to fight. They've just been gathered by Joshua, and they beat the fierce army of Amalek. And we also noticed last week the hatred of God's sworn enemies. That Amalek has no problem praying on the weak. And Joshua learns this early. And he's going to be doing, dealing with it for the next 80 years of his life. That God's enemies aren't just ambivalent about him and his people. They hate them. And so now in our study of Joshua, we've come to the second recorded incident in the life of Joshua. I hope you'll have your Bible open to Exodus 24. You'll certainly need it. Because not only will we look at this text, I will tell you from an Old Testament scholarship perspective. The moving up and down of the mountain of Moses and Joshua has befuddled many. I don't think it's that difficult, but we will see tonight. And what we're going to see is it's all about Joshua waiting. Perhaps you're thinking, oh no, and your wife is elbowing you at this point. Maybe you're that guy. You're the guy on Woodruff Road who's behind me honking. You're the guy who in in restaurants are like, "Uh, I ordered my food four and a half minutes ago. Where is it? What we're going to hear tonight is a profound spiritual discipline that Joshua, before he can be trusted with the people of God, has to learn how to wait. Let's seek the Lord's help now as we prepare to open his word. Sovereign Lord, you've promised that the preaching of your word will be effectual. That it will knock down error and enthrone truth. That it will be what conquers the enemy. Oh Christ, we need you to be our prophet, to speak the word to us and press it home to our conscience. And so now in the preaching of the word, speak to us, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Again, if you're looking at your copy of God's word, you will notice in Exodus 24, in verse 13... After the Lord calls to Moses and tells him to come up to me on the mountain and be there and I'll give you tablets of stone, notice who Moses brings with him. In Exodus twenty four thirteen. so Moses arose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And so we notice that, that Joshua now is in proximity to Moses. Wherever Moses is going, Joshua is going. And then in verse 14, look carefully. We read, and he said to the elders, wait here for us. Now, you don't have to be super bright to figure out the the pronouns. Wait here for us. Who's the us? It's he and Joshua. Wait here for us until we come back to you. And so the 70 elders of Israel, Aaron and Hur, are told to wait down at the bottom of the mountain. Moses says, I'm ascending and wait for us, me and Joshua. Moses Language indicates that he might be gone for some time. So the government of Israel is put in the hands of Aaron and Hur. Look at verse 14, 
where Moses speaks to the nation of Israel and says, Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. And so they are left in charge as wise magistrates. This is needed, by the way, in a nation of somewhere between 2 and 5 million, so there will be no backlog in the court docket. When you have 2 to 5 million people, you need some leaders who can adjudicate. So now just the two men are ascending. And you need to get a picture of, of who these two men are. 80-year-old Moses and somewhere around 35, 37-year-old Joshua. Then look at Exodus 24, verse 15 and following. And we read, Then Moses went up into the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. And what we find in verses 15 through 18 is Moses seems to ascend even higher to the top of Sinai alone. He goes beyond Joshua, leaving Joshua somewhere on the mountain alone. Because Moses will have dealings with Jehovah by himself. And then we're told in verse 18 that Moses stays on the mountain top for six weeks, 40 days. A lot can happen in 40 days. So then dig in deeper to the text with me. And I want us to leap over to Exodus 32. And the reason why I'm doing this is so that you'll see the come down in Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, pick up the narrative in verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, he's been up there six weeks. When the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. The Lord speaks to Moses atop Sinai in verse 7. Go get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And so Moses begins to descend. Look at verse 15. Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, on the one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And as he comes down the mountain, he picks someone up, Joshua. And Joshua, we read in verse 17, heard the noise of the people as they shouted, And he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. Now what I want you to see is Moses on the top of the mountain before he descends, and Joshua in the middle of the mountain had different perspectives. Moses on the top of the mountain, notice what God tells him in verse 7. The people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. But as he descends, he runs into Joshua. And Joshua, who's received no such revelation, he has a different thought about what's going on. Look at verse 17. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. Of course, this is like Joshua because he's a warrior. And so whenever he hears a loud noise, he immediately thinks there's a battle. I need to get to it. But Moses said to him, it's not the noise of the shout of victory nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So remember that Moses had said back in chapter 24, wait for us, he and Joshua. So now Moses and Joshua descend. Moses picks him up as he comes down the mountain after the 40 days are over. Joshua hadn't been in the camp. He hadn't been on top of the mountain either. 
He didn't know what was happening in the camp. His guess, look at Exodus 32, verse 17, his guess was wrong. Joshua had waited, and this is what I want us to see tonight, because what you have in that six-week period is you have a profound shaping of the character of Joshua. Joshua had waited in the middle of the mountain. So he didn't know what was happening down the mountain with the people of Israel or up the mountain with Moses and Jehovah. Joshua has been without, we'll call it horizontal fellowship, people fellowship. No interaction with a wife, a friend, or a child. Nor has he had, as the people down below had, nor has he had supernatural revelation like Moses had had on the mountaintop. Joshua had neither. No people, no voice of God, just him. Now some of you are asking very logical questions. Carl, my first question is, what did Joshua eat? Well, the text is silent. Maybe manna, maybe nothing. Carl, what did he do? It's plain that he had no technology. He prayed. He meditated. He made plans for the future. But most of all, he waited. One of the fascinating things about technology is that it works against patience. If you're hungry, microwave something, get food fast, no waiting. If you want to contact someone, you can get them anytime by text or cell phone. If you want entertainment, get it fast by the push of a button. If you want a possession or a trip, no need to save, exercise self-discipline, wait a year or two, because a credit card allows for instant gratification. Needless to say, waiting is not a popular virtue these days. Waiting is not a desirable skill, even among mature believers. But scripture teaches that waiting, it's called other things such as patience. Waiting is the fruit of the Spirit. Patience is repeatedly commanded in James chapter 5. And what I want you to notice, what I want you to hear carefully, is waiting is a major theme of the songbook of Israel, the Psalms. Repeatedly, God's people are to learn this discipline. They sing about it because you, you learn things better when you sing about it than any other medium. And so listen to how frequently the psalmist exalts the task of waiting. In Psalm 25, the psalmist writes, Let no one who waits on you be ashamed. On you, Lord, I wait all the day. Then in Psalm 27, the psalmist writes, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Or in Psalm 37, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Let me stop and just ask, do you know anything of this? How to wait on the Lord. The psalmist goes on in Psalm 37, evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Wait on the Lord and keep his way and he shall exalt you. The psalmist again writes, and this is a model for our piety in Psalm 40 verse 1, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. And that's just a sampling. If you just study the Psalter, you'll find over and over and over again that waiting on the Lord, the development of patience and long-suffering, is a spiritual discipline that every believer is to have. But it's not just the Psalms. 
probably one of your favorite memory verses, certainly one of mine, is Isaiah chapter 40, where Isaiah writes, Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. It's one of the the most beautiful, astounding pictures of what it means to wait on the Lord. Listen to what the, the writer of Isaiah says when he says, Those who wait on the Lord, they shall mount up with wings like eagles. Maybe you don't know how eagles mount up. An eagle's, an eagle's wings are so strong, they can catch rising currents of warm air that radiate upwards from the earth. And without moving a feather, they can reach great heights. Avian researchers have clocked eagles at 80 miles an hour without flapping their wings at all. They're soaring on columns of warm air. No flapping. Another form of flying for eagles, in addition to soaring, is flapping. This requires an eagle to keep its wings in constant motion to counteract gravity. This uses 30 times as much energy as soaring does. So the figure of speech the Lord is using in one of your favorite memory verses in Isaiah 40 is wait for the Lord's moving and it will be effortless. Or flap furiously and you will grow weary rapidly. But this isn't the only place when we have waiting commended to us. Remember what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12. Let your waist be girded, your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master. In Acts chapter 1, after the ascension of Jesus, Jesus commanded. And so the church gathered in that upper room in Acts chapter 1 to engage in that most holy of activities. To wait. For the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Paul describes the believer. Is he describing you? In Philippians 3 when he says, Our citizenship is in heaven. From which we eagerly wait. For the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, back to Joshua. He's sitting halfway up the mountain. Remember, Moses is up the mountain, atop there, with Jehovah, receiving the the tablets of the ten words down below him are millions of Israelites. And here's Joshua, halfway up the mountain for 40 days. I'm sure he got hungry and thirsty and lonely and bored. This is a young, vigorous, energetic man. He's a man of action who just won a spectacular military victory over Amalek. He has the ability to to fight and be busy. But now the Holy Spirit must give him the grace to wait. Patiently, alone. Do you ever ask the Lord for patience to wait? For a godly spouse? To wait until marriage to be sexually active? To wait for the Lord's resources? Do you ever confess sins of impatience? You know what impatience is. It's an unwillingness to wait. Parents, are you teaching your children how to wait? beginning with your modeling of patience to them, if you yell in slow traffic, guess where their impatience will come from? They'll learn it well by watching you. Since Joshua was Moses' assistant, it was his duty to wait at his, at his post where Moses had left him. Just as Joshua had conquered the Amalekites in the valley, now he must conquer impatience on the mountain. 
His patience is all the more remarkable when it's contrasted with the wicked impatience of the entire nation below at the foot of Mount Sinai. They utterly failed the test. Aaron and Hur failed the test. The 70 elders failed the test. They had all kinds of advantages. They could sleep in their own bed. They could eat their own food. They had comfort while waiting. They had mutual encouragement that was denied to Joshua. Yet he alone remained steadfast and patiently waited. Maybe that tells us something about how rare the spiritual discipline of waiting actually is. Israel is characterized by impetuousness and inability to wait. And in fact, their inability to wait is recorded in a song. Keep one finger here and look at Psalm 106. And I want you to notice what Israel sings. Every time they sing this, they'll have to look at one another and say, yeah, that was really a low spot in our history, wasn't it? Psalm 106. Pick up the narrative in verse 7. Again, this is the songbook of Israel. Psalm 106, verse 7. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. This is a historical psalm talking about Israel and the Exodus. Verse 10, he saved them from the hand of him who hated him, that would be Amalek, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their enemies, there was not one of them left. Then they believed his words, they sang his praise, they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. This has been a besetting sin of Israel's passed down through the generations. Think of what was laid into Israelite character at the very beginning of the, of the forming of the people. Abraham and Sarah, they're given a covenant promise. God's going to bless them with a son. They can't wait. So they resort to concubines. Abraham fathering a child by Hagar, resulting in Ishmael. And the results of that have plagued Israel and the world now for 3,750 years. Now what I want you to do is I want you to think with me how Joshua pictures the greater Joshua to come. Picture Joshua sitting halfway up that mountain. A week, two weeks, a month goes by, now six weeks. What is it that we are to learn from Joshua? Well, he typifies and he pictures the greater Joshua to come. As I've said, as we begin our study in Joshua, one of the things I'm going to be diligent about is over and over again showing you how Joshua, as glorious as he is, and he's wonderful. He's an amazing man. He's a man's man. He's a godly man. But he is but a signpost who's pointing us to the greater Joshua. And so a few things that ways that Joshua picks, pictures the greater Joshua to come. Joshua, first of all, knows how to be alone in his duty. In days to come, for him, this will be vital because he'll often have to stand alone as he makes hard decisions. Here, all Joshua had was day after day, stretching into weeks in the jagged barrenness of Mount Sinai. No small groups for him. No support groups. No calls. No emails. He's utterly alone. 
And in this, Joshua foreshadows the greater Joshua to come. You remember when the disciples in Mark chapter 14 fell asleep as Jesus prayed alone. And Jesus asked them, could you not watch and pray with me for one hour? Of course, the ultimate aloneness was when the greater Joshua cried out from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he's even forsaken by his father and he's ultimately alone. Joshua, halfway up the mountain, is is picturing for us in a dim, shadowy way the greater Joshua who knows how to be alone in his duty. Another way that Joshua typifies the greater Joshua to come, he knows how how to wait. This will stand him in good stead when he has to wait not 40 days but 40 years to enter into the promised land. He's a man of action, but he has to wait and patiently endure. What a glorious foreshadowing of the greater Joshua. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus, the greater Joshua, into the wilderness to wait for temptation and 40 days of being assaulted by the evil one. The greater Joshua at that point had already waited 30 years in utter obscurity. But this was his father's decreed timetable. To push this even further, how does Joshua typify the greater Joshua to come? Joshua knows how to be loyal to an absentee superior. When Moses descended the mountain and came back down after being with Jehovah atop the mountaintop, he didn't have to look around for Joshua and wonder where he'd gone. Joshua was right where he'd left him. Six weeks later. The same loyalty couldn't be found among Moses' own brother Aaron. True loyalty is the rarest of traits, especially to an absentee superior. But listen to the loyalty of the greater Joshua. When he says in John 6, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Absolute obedience, perfect, unshakable loyalty. So that Jesus could say in John chapter 8, I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. How do we apply this word to you tonight? We're going to dig in deep in coming weeks to Joshua and how we watch his character develop. One of the things that Sandy and I, the way we rate a movie or a series is, does the author develop the character well or are we just supposed to figure it out? One of the things we see in Joshua, especially in the book of Exodus and then in Numbers, we see this, this glorious, for those of you who'd like to be a writer or a storyteller, you can do no better then the way the Lord slowly rolls out the character development of Joshua. And we see him grow even before our eyes. In fact, next week or two weeks from tonight, we'll see Joshua stumble. Well, how do we apply this text? The same things that Joshua learned are the things you must learn in the Christian life. And so first, I would ask you, have you learned to be alone in your calling or duty? Some of you are the only believer in your home or on your job or in your class. And a great part of your calling is to simply stand alone. It's where your superior by his good providence has placed you. I'm quite sure Joshua would be dumbfounded tonight by those who say, I can't do my duty because I have no support. Fellowship is great. Support is marvelous. But what if you don't have those? Stand alone. Think of Noah. My favorite example of standing alone. Noah had to cut down a whole forest for lumber without chainsaws or trucks or cranes. 
He had to precisely cut and shape a boat without power tools. He had to build the equivalent of a shopping mall room by room inside this boat. He had to work at this for 120 years. He had to grow a a harvest, grow and harvest a year's worth of food for his family and for all these thousands of animals and carefully stow it in this boat. He labored a year, then a decade, then another, then a century, then a couple more decades. And he did all this while we are told in Second Peter 2, while laboring as a preacher of righteousness. All the while he didn't argue with God or question his wisdom or discuss the relevance. He was waiting for 12 decades. That's the right response of the godly man to the commands of God. What moved a man like Noah to such obedience, his alone in his obedience? Hebrews 11 tells us faith and fear, belief in God's promise and the fear of the Lord. Noah waited alone, as did Joshua, as must you. Do you know anything of waiting alone on the Lord? It's fascinating. I, I can't tell you how many times in 35 and a half years of, of ministry, how many times I've had people saying, Carl, could you set up a group? You know, I need people. I, I, I need people who will pray with me and call me and concern and eat with. I've never had one soul in 35 years say, Carl, could you help me learn how to wait alone? Another application. Have you learned to... To wait. The discipline of waiting itself on God's providential purposes. I'm freely confessing it's hard to wait. You get that car in front of you. It may be me on Woodruff Road that doesn't hit the gas hard as soon as the light turns green and there goes your sanctification. Same happens at the bank, the restaurant, the cleaners. But many of you need to learn this vital lesson. Waiting for the end of a painful trial waiting for God to mature and equip you, waiting for God to vindicate his truth, waiting for God to raise you up instead of grabbing at reins of leadership. Holy waiting is a spiritual discipline that involves acknowledging God's sovereign control of all things, even the calendar and the clock. This is when we learn how to trust God as our Heavenly Father. Waiting also involves, and I'm not going to go deep into the aspect of what it means to wait on the Lord, but waiting not only involves acknowledging God's sovereign control, but waiting in Scripture, amazingly enough, involves being patient and quiet. Biblical waiting does not mean, waiting over here, everybody see me? It's been 20 minutes now, I'm really waiting. Waiting means being patient and And quiet, listen to what the psalmist writes in Psalm 62. My soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. My soul wait silently for God alone. Do you know anything of this? Waiting means refraining refraining from fretting and fear. Waiting worry is never appropriate. And so let me ask you. The thing that we see Joshua embodying, and that is obeying a God-given superior. Here goes Joshua halfway up the mountain, and Moses turns to him and says, wait right here. And he sees Moses' backside. And that's his last words for six weeks. And he keeps going, I'm sure, through his mind. Did, Did he say wait right here? Yeah, that's what he said. 
He's loyal to his God-ordained superiors. Are you, by the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling you, the sort of person who does what is commanded, even when your parent or your boss or your teacher is not present? Can you do that on the job? Paul commends it in Ephesians 6. Can you do that in the church? The writer of Hebrews tells us to do the same thing with our elders in Hebrews 13. Teenagers, when you're away from mom and dad, do you do you do and say what they've commanded you, or do you live two lives and have two vocabularies, one for home and another for friends? Brothers and sisters, these things that the Lord is showing to us and saying, look, this is a choice servant of mine. We saw last week that Romans and 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that we're to be admonished by these character traits. These are the hallmarks of sanctification that the Lord is teaching us. Fidelity to duty, even when alone. Patiently waiting on God's purposes. Loyalty and obedience to superiors. May God work these holy, Christ-like traits in us for his glory. Tonight as well, we come to the Lord's table in just a moment. And the Lord has a meal set for us, and I will tell you this meal is a specific type of meal. It's a meal to give you sustenance while you wait. This is God's diet for those who are waiting. For we're told in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six that we are to eat this meal until he comes. It's been 2,000 years now. But this is the meal that will sustain us until he comes. Let's pray together. Our God, we ask for grace, sanctifying grace, that you would teach us patience, a moldable heart, and that we might learn how to wait upon you and thus know your blessing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.